Well, it's a new year, and we are going to turn to a a new book. Uh, We are finished in our study of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and so I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth, way back in the Old Testament. Now, before we get to Ruth and also Naomi, the two central figures in that, in that book, in that portion of God's Word, I want to remind you of another famous woman, not from Scripture, but I am certain that most of us are familiar with this name, Amy Carmichael. Uh, Amy Carmichael, if you're not familiar with the name, was a missionary in India in the early 1900s. As a matter of fact, she was a missionary in India for 56 years without ever taking a furlough. I'm guessing the woman knew something of trials uh, related to ministry. She opened an orphanage and oversaw the running of an orphanage during most of those years in India. And she suffered and encountered and experienced numerous trials associated with ministry. But Amy Carmichael also suffered Uh, numerous trials, what we might call associated with life, uh, life trials. Uh, When she was relatively young, when she was a child, her father died. That's a trial. Uh, As a young woman, she contracted or developed, I don't know the whole story, but something that's called neuralgia. I think I'm saying that correctly, a a disease, an ailment of the nerves, uh, whereby she was in constant pain. Her body ached all the time to such a point that she would spend uh, weeks on end in bed, uh, incapacitated because of the aches and pains afflicting her body. Uh, Later in life, she experienced a a serious fall, a debilitating fall, the result of which uh, she spent uh, the last 20 years of her life bedridden. Uh, Amy Carmichael knew what it was to face trials. I found this this past week. I had never read it before, and it um, it really it struck me. It hit home. Toward the end of the, her life, it's recorded, apparently, that she said the following, I cannot recall a single explanation of trial. That, that, that floored me, to use the vernacular. That floored me. I cannot recall a single explanation of trial. In other words, and I hope I'm not putting words in her mouth, but I think she is saying that as I reflect on life, my life, and I reflect on every trial, every fl- affliction, every tribulation, I have no idea why. I cannot recall a single explanation of trial. And then she added the following words, most profound. We as Christians are entrusted with the unexplained. We as Christians are entrusted with the unexplained. That that she she articulates in those words a most profound, basic, essential biblical truth, it is this. Faith, Christian, your faith 
my faith does not rest in understanding why. Our faith rests in understanding who. Did you get that? The Christian's faith is not rooted in understanding why. The Christian's faith is rooted, established upon understanding who. Our faith rests in a sovereign God. That is what Amy Carmichael clearly understood. And that, as we turn our attention to the book of Ruth, is this book's principal main lesson. That the believer's faith rests not in understanding why, not in being being able to answer every question, but the believer's faith rests on a sovereign a sovereign God. The context of the book of Ruth, most important. It takes place, for those of you familiar with this book, when? During the days of the Judges. We looked at the book of Judges around this time last year. And you'll remember that Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. Joshua leads Israel into Canaan. Israel's first king, Saul isn't anointed until 1050 B.C. That means that for more than 300 years, Israel is without a king. This is one of Israel's most turbulent periods of history. The times of the judges. And the very last verse in that book stamps, if you like, a description over that entire period. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The events recorded in the book of Ruth take place in those days. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Ruth, strategically located in God's word, reminds us of what? Yes, in those days there was no king in Israel, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords most certainly ruled. That's the essence of the book of Ruth. That is the message of this portion of God's word. We can sum it up as follows. The book of Ruth describes the relatively unimportant details in the lives of relatively unimportant people demonstrating a supremely important truth. God rules over all. That's the book. And so we turn this morning to the very first chapter. And I invite you to follow along as I read this chapter for us. Seek by the Spirit's help to enter into the narrative, the story, It's a wonderful story. Take time later today to read it from beginning to end and reread it. And think of the major characters of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and secondary characters as they emerge in the story. And see what it is that God is seeking to convey as he demonstrates through this narrative his sovereign rule, his providential hand over all of these circumstances. And so enter into it with me now as I begin reading. 
in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest.
Now, there is a lot in this chapter. We aren't going to get to everything this morning. Uh, What I want us to do is very simple. We're going to notice three things about Naomi. Uh, Three things she does as recorded in the verses we've just read. From each of those, I'm going to declare a doctrine, uh, a doctrine as articulated from Scripture. And all of this is going to aid us in our understanding of God's sovereignty, our understanding of God's providence. Again, the central message of this book. And so we're just going to simply look at three things, three, three things that Naomi does. And from each of, of these events in her, in her life, in her experience, we're going to derive one doctrine that is clearly affirmed throughout Scripture and see the application and the implication for us. And then once we've done that, we're going to look at the second major theme in this book briefly, which is what? Not only is it designed to point us to God's providence, It is designed to point us to God's grace. Grace in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Focus on God's providence in these three things that Naomi does. Three affirming, three invaluable troops. And then briefly mentioning this secondary theme, God's grace in Christ. And how it brings us to the Lord's Supper. So we begin with Naomi. And the first thing I want you to notice about her is this. Obvious to all of us. She suffers a terrible loss. Naomi suffers a terrible loss. It is summed up in verse 5. And both Malon and Chilion died. So that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons. And her husband. Turn to verse 20, where she describes her own experience. She said to them, that is to the women of Bethlehem. She's been absent at least 10 years, but they remember her. And they they ask, is this Naomi? She responds to them in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. That is her summary. That is her description of her own life experience. In the death of her husband, in the deaths of her two sons. She sees God's hand against her. This is a most bitter providence. And so do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She has suffered a terrible loss. You can imagine, Naomi, her hopes and her dreams and her aspirations. As they leave Bethlehem because of the drought, because of the famine, they move to Moab. Perhaps they begin to prosper there. Suddenly, her husband dies, but all hope is not lost. She still has her two sons. Her sons marry, but then suddenly, both sons are gone. Here is a woman who has experienced a most bitter providence. The doctrine, the truth, very simple. Nothing complicated here, brothers and sisters, but extremely difficult to live by this truth. 
The doctrine is taken from Job, the book of Job, chapter 14, verse 1. Man, who is born of a woman, is few of days and full of trouble. Man, who is born of a woman, is few of days and full of trouble. Read the life of Abraham. Read the life of Jacob. Read the life of Isaac. Read the life of Job. Read the life of David. Read the life of Daniel. And what does every saint in Scripture confirm? The validity, the veracity of that truth. Man, who is born of a woman, is few of days and full of trouble. Two things to help us understand this trouble. The first is this. It is often surprising. Naomi doesn't see this coming, brothers and sisters. Naomi is making plans. Naomi is living life. Naomi is planning her retirement. Naomi is planning her life with her husband, her sons, hopefully grandchildren, surrounded by all of her loved ones, when in a moment of time, suddenly, it is all taken from her. And notice, secondly, brothers and sisters, that this kind of trouble, not only is it surprising, but it is crippling. Absolutely crippling. As far as Naomi is concerned, life is almost over. Her life revolved around her husband and her sons, the dreams of grandchildren, all gone. No hope of any of it. And it has a crippling effect upon Naomi. I know this is doom and gloom. I know this is, let's face it, rather depressing. And yet I fear at times when it comes to trial and trouble, we are our own worst enemy. Why? Because we don't expect it. We don't expect it. Living and enjoying the prosperity we do, living and enjoying the medical advancements that we have seen, living and enjoying the technological burst, if you like, explosion of, of recent decades. Uh, we, we can go through life thinking that uh, all should be a bed of roses. And yet Scripture teaches us the exact opposite, does it not? It teaches us to expect trial and to prepare for trouble. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. The second thing I want you to notice about Naomi is this. She attributes her suffering to God. She attributes her suffering to God. Look for starters at what she says in verse 13. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? She's speaking to her daughters-in-law. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Look now what she says in verse 20 and into verse 21. She said to them, this is again to the women of Bethlehem, Do not call me Naomi. 
Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full, my my husband, my sons, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Interestingly, twice in those verses, once in verse 20, once in verse 21, she refers to God as the Almighty, Shaddai. If memory serves me correctly, and it may not, but if it serves me correctly, we find this name of God 41, 42 times in the Old Testament, uh, maybe a little more than that, maybe it's mid-40s. 31 times in the book of Job, appropriately enough. This name for God, Shaddai, bespeaks his power. His power, his reign, his rule. Look at what she says at the end of verse 20. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And look at what she says at the end of verse 21. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. In other words, it is what the Almighty has determined for me. It is what the Almighty has purposed for me. And who can challenge his power? Who can question his authority? That once in his mind he determined bitterness for me, it most certainly came to pass. The Almighty, again, I pray these statements grip us. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi grasps what Hannah is going to articulate so clearly later on in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. Naomi attributes her suffering to God. The doctrine. The doctrine I want us to take from this as articulated, expressed in Scripture itself. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's God's sovereignty. That is God's sovereign rule. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us one of the clearest descriptions of the sovereignty of God in his epistle to the Romans. He tells us that from him, that is from God, through him, through God, to him, to God, are all things. All things are from him. All things are through him. All things are to him. The cause of all things. You think of a sculpture. Uh, Last week, Allison and I and Laura went to see ice up in Grapevine. 
And there in that, at that convention center, they have these refrigerator-like conditions where they've brought over these, these sculptors from China to make these beautiful sculptures, ice sculptures in celebration of Christmas. What caused these sculptures? I was thinking of this as I was walking through, admiring their handiwork. What caused these sculptures? Well, there are a number of causes, aren't there? Uh, there's a final cause, namely the plans. Someone had a plan. They didn't just start hacking away at a big block of ice and hope something emerged from it. No, there was a plan carefully drawn up. That was the final cause of these sculptures. There was also an instrumental cause. Uh, they didn't use their bare hands. Uh, they grabbed hammers. They grabbed chisels. They used chainsaws. All sorts of things to, 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 to enter into this ice and remove what they did not want until these, these sculptures emerged. And then there was obviously an efficient cause. Nothing would have been accomplished. Nothing would have been done apart from the sculptor himself. From him, through him, to him are all things. From him, he is the efficient cause. It is God's will that is done among his creatures. Through him, he is the instrumental cause by which all things come into being and by which all things transpire. And to him, he is the final cause, his glory. Understand this, friend. This world is but a stage. This world is but a stage upon which God is displaying his glory for the entire universe. From him, through him, and to him are all things. That is what is summed up there in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The book of Ruth confirms it. Who caused the drought, the famine in Bethlehem to begin with? Forcing Elimelech and Naomi and their sons to move to the land of Moab. God did. Their, their sons Mary those Moabite women. Elimelech dies, and then Naomi's sons die. And then Naomi hears that there's a harvest. God has visited his people back in Israel, and so she moves. Uh, one morning, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, just happens to end up in the field of Boaz and just happens to meet Boaz. But you see, there's another relative who actually has first rights and is actually responsible before Boaz for, for marrying Ruth and for, and for bringing up an heir who can inherit Ruth's husband's land. And yet that, that relative, he wants nothing to do with it. And so the responsibility falls on Boaz. And then Boaz and Ruth, they actually have a, a child. And, and then at the end of the book of Ruth, it seems strange, but thrown onto the end of the book of Ruth is a genealogy. And in that genealogy, it clearly demonstrates for us that Ruth is actually the great-grandmother of whom? David, the king of Israel. Fast forward to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what did we discover? That Ruth is actually there in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. A famine, who cares? A harvest, who cares? 
Elimelech, can't even spell the name, his death, who cares? The death of two sons, somewhat trivial on the pages of human history. Some Moabitess woman named Ruth of absolutely no significance or consequence at all. A marriage, how many marriages have taken place? A baby born, we're talking billions. All under the sovereign rule of God as he accomplishes his purposes among men. Remember what I said at the outset. The book of Ruth describes the relatively unimportant details in the lives of relatively unimportant people, demonstrating a supremely important truth. God rules over all. Naomi understands that. She doesn't blame bad luck. She doesn't blame bad karma. She doesn't blame the devil. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Third thing I want us to notice about Naomi is this. She remains faithful. She remains faithful. She isn't always presented in the light in which I am about to present her. And yet I think if we read the text carefully, you will agree with me. You will see this is true. While Naomi describes her experience as bitterness, she is not a bitter woman. She is not a bitter woman. Look at what she says way back, or what we read rather, back in verse 6. Then she arose, that is Naomi, this is after the death of her husband and her, and her sons. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Think of it. Think of it, brothers and sisters. Here's a woman who knows God has taken her husband from her, who knows God has taken her two sons from her, who knows it was God who caused the famine in the first place in Bethlehem, forcing them to move to Moab. There she is in Moab, surrounded by false gods. Think of it. What had this God done for her? It's your best life now. I don't think so. Here is a woman who has lost everything precious, who attributes the cause directly to God. And yet, even when surrounded by false gods, even when some might excuse her for turning her back on God and seeking help in a crutch and a talisman elsewhere, she has nothing to do with it. As soon as she hears that the Lord, Yahweh, has visited her people back in Bethlehem. She leaves Moab for home. Second thing I want you to notice brings us to verses 8 and 9. Look at what she says to her daughters-in-law. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, 
in the house of her husband. While acknowledging the sovereignty of God, while recognizing that the Almighty had brought calamity upon her, Naomi never wavers in her faith. She is as convinced now as she was then of God's goodness, of God's kindness, of God's favor, and she remains faithful. Change my name to bitterness, from Naomi to Mara. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Her experience, bitter. But she was not a bitter woman. Her faith in God did not waver. I was reminded recently of uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Have you read Moby Dick? Classic. What's the sea captain's, captain's name? Ahab, right? The biblical names in that book are interesting, but we don't have time to go into that. Ahab uh, encounters the, the great white whale and loses his leg in the process. Uh, after that encounter, he enters into the bowels of the ship and uh, is near death, languishing in pain. And Melville pens the following for long months. Long months, Ahab, Ahab and anguish lay stretched together in one hammock, rounding in midwinter that dreary, howling Patagonian cape. Then it was that his torn body and gashed soul bled into one another and so interfusing made him mad. And Ahab was a man consumed with bitterness. He gets a new ship. He gets a new crew. And he sets out to settle the score with that great white whale. And it costs him his life. I've met them. You've met them. People who go through life riddled with bitterness. Christian, the number of believers who go through life consumed with bitterness. God had no business doing that to me. God had no right taking that from me. This cry of self-entitlement in the face of God's goodness and in the face of God's providence and in the face of God's Sovereignty. Again, that isn't Naomi. Yes, Naomi suffered a terrible loss. Yes, Naomi attributed her suffering to God. And yet Naomi remained faithful. The doctrine is this from the book of Job. Job states it in the past tense. I'm going to state it in the present tense. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be The name of the Lord. Invaluable truth here. Naomi, she tells us in verse 20 or verse 21, verses 20 and 21, that she went out full and the Lord brought her back empty. Please understand, 
This is a material emptiness, not a spiritual emptiness. This woman is empty of every earthly comfort. It has been ripped from her. But this is a woman who still enjoys spiritual, heavenly comfort. And George Swinnick describes this comfort as follows, this spiritual fullness. He says, if all the gold of the whole world, now, now use your imagination here, if all the gold, I don't know what that looks like, of the whole world were melted into one stream, And if all the pearls and precious stones were set on the banks of the stream, and if the excellence of all other creatures were crushed into sand at the bottom of the stream, it would still be an unworthy metaphor for describing the least perfection in our God. He is our portion. It is in him that we find fullness Spiritual fullness. It is exceedingly difficult to live like that. I won't pretend otherwise. Exceedingly difficult to live like that. It is exceedingly difficult to live like this when we, when we, when we have ingrained in our thinking this equation between God's favor and material prosperity. Now, I know we say, oh, no, we don't believe that. That's health, wealth, prosperity. Friend, most of us believe that on some level. On some level in our thinking, we equate the two. God's favor means material blessing. Now, work, work with me back up just through a series of questions. Does material blessing come from God? Yes. Fair enough. Should we be thankful for material blessing? Yes, two for two. So far, so good. Does material blessing mean mean God is pleased with us? No. Or else it would mean that Donald Trump is one of God's favorites. This is, exce- this is difficult for us to grasp. It has been ingrained in our thinking. We believe it, although we may never articulate it verbally. It is there in our subconscious. God gives material blessing God is good. He's being favorable toward me. That that, that reveals his disposition to me. That reveals that he's pleased with me. If he takes those things away, adversity, if I experience adversity and experience tribulation, well, that means God is displeased with me. That is simply untrue, friend. That is untrue, brother. Untrue, sister. Health, wealth, Family, bank account, secure job, financial security, material blessing, material prosperity does not translate into God's pleasure with us. Until we grasp that, we, we can nev- we'll never get it. We, we can never enter into Naomi's experience. Uh, Naomi loses everything. If ever anyone could think, well, this means, this means God doesn't like me. Or, or this, this is an expression of God's displeasure with me. Naomi could have thought that. That's not her thinking. Naomi knows that, yes, God has sent a bitter providence her way. 
And yet her repeated appeal to the Lord's goodness, the Lord's kindness, her unwavering commitment to the Lord, even in the land of Moab, where she is surrounded by false worship, false gods, she's immersed in an idolatrous culture. She is not moved. There is no wavering. She remains firm in her commitment. Exceedingly difficult to live like this. And why we must understand that the material is no indicator, is no sign of what God thinks or doesn't think of us. Our fullness is found in God. God's favor toward us and what he thinks of us is found in only one place, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is what God thinks of me. There is God's pleasure in me. There is God's delight in me. Because I am one with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so whatever transpires around me, whatever I face in life, whatever is ripped from me in my experience, it does not change God's good will, good plans, good purposes, good intentions, and love for me. Because it remains unchangeable in his unchanging son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now from those three events in Naomi's life, we've taken three doctrines. And let me point you to two tremendous conclusions. The first is this. This doctrine of God's sovereignty is providential rule. It glorifies God and it humbles man. It's supposed to. It is designed to put God where he belongs, and it is designed to place us where we belong. It glorifies God, and it humbles man. The second is this. It produces gratitude in prosperity. It produces gratitude in prosperity, and it produces patience in adversity. Let me illustrate that for you. Vance Havner, after the death of his wife, wrote in one of his books, I think of a year that started out so pleasantly for my beloved and me. We had made plans for delightful months ahead together. Instead, I sat by her bedside and watched her die of an unusual disease. She expected to be healed, but she died. Now all hopes of a happy old age together are dashed to the ground. I plod on alone. With the other half of my life on the other side of death, my hand reaches for another hand now vanished. And I listen at night for the sound of a voice that is still. And I am tempted a thousand times to ask, My God, why? But he says in the next paragraph, Christian, you need never ask why, because Calvary covers it all. When before the throne we stand in him complete, all the riddles that puzzle us here will fall into place. And we will know in fulfillment what we now believe in faith, that all things work together for our good in his eternal purpose. No longer will we cry, my God, why? 
alas, will become hallelujah. All question marks will be straightened into exclamation points. Sorrow will change to singing. And pain will be lost in praise. You see a firm grasp on the book of Ruth. A firm grasp on God's sovereignty produces gratitude, thankfulness in prosperity. And it produces patience in adversity. Listen to this next sentence. It anchors the soul in the midst of storms. And it refreshes the soul in the midst of droughts. And so I began this morning with Amy Carmichael. I began with her comment As she reflected on her own trials, I cannot recall a single explanation of trial. We are entrusted with the unexplained. That yes, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. That yes, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That yes, the Lord gives And the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Our God and glory above, as we meditate upon these things, we are challenged in our thoughts concerning you, concerning your ways among us. And at the same time, we are comforted as we remember this glorious truth that you are on your throne from before time began, you and you alone. And so it is in you we find our fullness. It is in you we find our portion. It is in you we find our comfort. In you we find our encouragement. We pray, our Father, that you would make it so by the power of your spirit and by the power of your word. And we pray that it may be so for the eternal glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen.